0: Good afternoon for those of the UK. Uh, we're at the usual time for What Comes Next Live on Tuesday at 5pm. My guest is in the UK. I'm in the Cayman Islands finishing off the quarantine. I'm visiting uh, my home island for the first time in 18 months, so it's 11am here. My guest this week is Ben Ford of Commander Development, who I was introduced to by Ben Braben, uh, another alumni, alumnus of these conversations. Um, so you can look up Ben, um, the other Ben's conversation another time. been meaning to talk to Ben for um, a long time and lots of engagement on Twitter where we're both there pretty much a lot of the time. And some people call it of humanity, exact words. But actually, I find if you're selective about who you engage with and how you engage, it's a wonderful way to connect to people and learn. This, these half-hour conversations are always, a, you know, with a theme of what comes next. Really starts with what's on the mind of the guest, and it's just an opportunity for the guest to talk about anything they're interested in. And my own bias is towards leadership. It can be anything at all. I, and if you viewers or listeners check any of the previous 60 or so shows, they're pretty eclectic. One thing that's common is all of the guests are interesting, so uh, and often inspiring. Just to re- push the bar up a little bit for you then so welcome <laughs> welcome ben ford thanks tom
1: uh yeah i've been looking forward to this as well i've seen uh, a few of your previous conversations and yeah obviously we've we've been uh we've been back and forth a little bit over twitter so uh yeah it should be uh should be fun
0: cool so what's on your mind or well, tell us perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself first um and then what's on your mind
1: sure okay so um yeah my name's ben um i'm a um technology person i guess that's a, getting more and more difficult to define um so i spent Yeah, 10, 15 years in startups and finance, building, building stuff and leading teams. And, um, over the last, I guess five years, I've really been sort of trying to, trying to fit two things together. One, one's further, further in the past is my history, uh, in, I, I spent some time in the Royal Marines before I was a technologist and then, um, trying to apply things that we learn and do in the Marines to building better teams in technology, which I thought for a very long time were very unrelated. Turns out when you find the right kind of doctrine and the right books, there's quite a lot of crossover. So lately, I've been sort of diving back into technology and helping non-technical businesses build the right systems. And I guess what's on my mind really is how can we think of leadership as a system rather than a set of skills? Hmm. That's the one thing that I've kind of realized that the military really does. You know, we, we have this idea in our head that the military is all about training great leaders, and that's all about building people's skills up. But actually, I think the military and other organizations that have a good culture or doctrine or, or leadership It's as much about building the skill within that organization as it is the, uh, sorry, the system within the organization as it is the, the skills. Okay. So leadership is a system rather than a set of skills. Interesting. And the reason I say that this is the case is because, you know, one of the things that the military has. So one of the, well, let's, let's look at the problems that, that business have at the moment. So there's a huge amount of turnover of people, right? So in technology companies like high, high tech startups, particularly, you know, average tenure of somebody in that, in those businesses is low and getting lower and the pace of change and therefore the life you know the, the life cycle stages of that company is getting faster so people stay in positions much shorter than they used to and in the military people cycle through positions in sort of you know a year 18 months as well the interesting thing in the military is that it doesn't really matter who i mean yes it matters but it doesn't really matter who cycles through that position they have a well-known System to slot into, and I think you know if you kind of extrapolate this pace of change forward, I think we'll we'll find that most that companies need to have that system in place as well. So the system is whatever that nebulous thing that drives people to work together is
0: increasingly augmented by technology and social technology. I'm working with a client right now that works in the film production business, producing video in the you know let's think of movies or TV shows, right? And, you, and you're going to have 80 people on set. And what I really wasn't, I'm learning, I mean, I tend to learn about businesses as I work with them. It's very much like the military in some ways in that, and, and linkage to technology and the people come together. They're, in this case, they're often freelance. And when you look at this thing about huge turnover, I mean, some audience who are not involved with it might not recognize that, you know, when you say the average length of turnover at 10 is short and getting shorter, somebody has been with a tech company for two years this is a long-serving individual. Right. Yeah. So a lot of cases, particularly in the deep technology space where it's changing so fast, software engineering and architecture and coding and stuff like that. And in the movie business... You don't hire 80 people doing 40 different roles for a set. Yep. You have a very small core team and you know who to call and you have a contact book. When they get on set, they know what the roles are. This is the military, you know, people know what a grip does. They know what a focus puller does. They, you know, mm-hmm. these are very old fashioned terms, but they still mean something. And there's a, there is a, a hierarchy of development that happens. What I'm finding really interesting is when you talk about systems, you say that nebulous thing that draws people to work together. I find this pace, I've been finding this pace of change bit. is really driven my work for the last seven or eight years because mm. as another guest on the show, Chris Vanderkaal, talks about, we're living in the fastest times we've ever lived in and the slowest times we shall ever live in. And so when we talk about systemizing it, and bear in mind, I'm a recovering chartered accountant. I do numbers and data and logic and rationale. But it's something when you don't know what's going to be in front of you tomorrow. Right? And in the military, that might be, you know, the Mike Tyson adage of everybody has a plan to get punched in the face. You know, yep. you know if, if somebody was, you know, looking to guard the perimeter of Kabul Airport in the last couple of weeks, they've got no idea what's going to come at them the next moment. Yeah. Um, but what has them pulled together as a team? Well, partly it's the stripes or pips on their shoulder. And everybody knows what that role is in the command hierarchy. But partly it's about skills. But it's that nebulous bit that actually particularly interests me around the system piece, which is generally, which is things like culture and values. So there's yeah. a the thought of that client I'm working with. They're in a, there's a massive, Technology leap, very much fourth industrial revolution conversation that they are at the forefront of, and they have absolutely no idea what it's going to look like in two or three years' time. But at the moment, they have insatiable demand for what they're doing, and their biggest issue is getting people who are skilled up. And the yeah. skill they skill them up with will be irrelevant in about eighteen months' time. Yeah. So how do they? You know, what's the the thing they're working on with me? I'm not the tech guy, but or the technical guy either. But I'm working with them on, if you will, a system of leadership. And yeah. simply put, it's about purpose. It's about mission, vision, values, and that kind of thing, um, which is all pretty standard stuff. Yeah, uh, in, in a way, but it is fairly nebulous. But you kind of know it when you see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, um, just a few thoughts I'm 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 reflecting on. Um, and back to you. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, so so that that is interesting that you know you, you have I, I think this is the, that example of the film business is really going to be something that is more and more prevalent in normal normal businesses as well. I mean, you've already got you know the idea of um, of DAOs from from the cryptocurrency communities where you have you know or or, you know certain sci-fi books right where you've got this kind of autonomous system that sits underneath everything and and you know does all the apportioning of wages and things like that. Right? There's there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in businesses that. Doesn't need human input. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that does. Really, mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is that that nebulous kind of let's call it let's call it doctrine. I don't know. I don't have a better word, but you know, a, a system and set of common understanding and shared understanding. That, that is what gives you that kind of higher platform to build off, right? So Google's a good example, right? You, you're a software developer and you go and join Google. You're not like a software developer in any other country, any other company anymore, apart from maybe Amazon or others that do this as well. So you join Google and you've suddenly got all of their platforms and internal systems and everything to build off and you need to learn how to do that, which means that when Google spins up a, an experiment or tries something new, mm-hmm. the amount that they have to build, is much smaller than, you know, let's say if I was going to go and try and build something like that myself, right? Mm-hmm. And increasingly, the that platform is more and more available. So, you know, Google invents something, Amazon invents something, they make that available through through an API. And as a as a software developer now, if you were going to go and build something new, mm-hmm. you would have to build a lot less of that stack than you would have done five right. ten years ago. So it's increasingly becoming more about how fast you can learn because the the you know the opportunities are more fleeting they have to be addressed quicker threats are you know more immediate and they they come up more often <clears throat> they need to be mitigated and you know whatever this system of leadership or doctrine or culture is hmm. it's what allows you to reorientate quickly and you know maybe we could go on to a bit of ooda loop stuff there because hmm. that's really what this is about is
0: building yeah i mean we can do that in a second but if this not to challenge it is this when we think <clears throat> about the concept of a corporation, right? Uh, fairly simple core level it's a place people are employed by and they go to work and i'm 55 you're a lot younger than me but you know my parents generation was get a you know get a good education get a good get a job for life within 10 to 15 years of that so we're talking 20 years ago right when i was hiring people i would if they stayed anywhere for more than four or five years right this is 15 20 years ago i'd be wondering why Really um but but because <clears> they <throat> there's always the opportunity to develop yourself, nuns at certain levels of you know skill and education and stuff, but now it's like. Is that ever, you know, the idea of, I mean, to be honest, you fast forward 10 years, is anybody ever going to have a job in, in the sort of industries we're talking about that are on the bleeding edge of of this? Because if you're cons, if it's about how fast can you learn, then you get to the point where like, you know, you're pretty replaceable because the more it's built into, you know, I, when I did computer programming, right, we're talking the olden days. Right. And the one element I give to you is there were no drag and drop widgets or chunks of code. You literally typed it into a compiler. Yeah. Right. So the very early days of C, which hasn't fundamentally changed. But the difference is you wrote every line of code. There was no cut and paste. Now, that's 30, long time ago, nearly 40 years ago. Right. But. You know, now, it's, as you say, it's increasingly you have to learn less because the tools are there. But humans tend to like structure and stability. This is one of the reasons I'm finding there's a lot of fear-based behavior around vaccines and all kinds of stuff. It's just it's a it's an expression of wobbliness around ambiguity. So I'm just wondering when we look at this and go. So when we talk about systems, there are nebulous systems, doctrines, leadership, a system is set of shared understandings, whatever, whatever those referring to which can be consistent no matter what the tech is and no matter the place of change. But underneath there, if we get to the point where we can't have an underpinning, which makes it commercially valuable and purposeful to have a large corporation or even a small corporation, if, you know, I mean, these days, you know, look at the amount of stuff that you can get done by somebody on Fiverr. Yeah. That used to cost you thousands. So, yeah. Uh, there was a thing going on you know, a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago about, well, you know, there's pretty much nothing you can't do for $50,000 to set up a company. Now $50,000 is a bloody high barrier for a huge amount of humanity. But yes, it's very valid. It used to cost 5 million. But I'm wondering what this means in terms of systems. You know, it's like...
1: Yeah, that is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, you could certainly make a pretty
0: strong argument over the last eighteen
1: months that the systems of our society are creaking somewhat in, Mm. you know, in the pace of something that changes. Like, I mean, like COVID, right? The the shakiness of our what um, Daniel Schmachtenberger calls um, it's epistemology, right? The 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 just the ability to know what you know Mm. and how, and you know, the ability to trust that is just so low now because you know we get all of our information from platforms. You know, this video that's that's streaming out now you know, it's not you who's deciding who sees that. Yeah. It's an algorithm that decides who sees that. So, and that, and, you know, that goes for probably 90% of the things that people consume nowadays. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a system that, you know, was invented, well, okay, Facebook was invented to sell advertising and has been exacted by people to use it for other things. And that's how, I mean, that's how human progress works. But maybe this is one of the few times where that progress is actively detrimental to the cohesion of of society as a whole yeah you have to wonder what the second and third order effects
0: of that playing out (laughs) at some point let me try to bring it back because i do want you to talk specifically about i know you've done some work around the ooda loop and taking that back into business but example for me is my middle son just turned 24. And a number of years ago, he was fortunate enough to get an interview at Cambridge College to study economics. He didn't get in, but he came out from the core interview, which was with amazing professors, dons they call them, a couple of whom are Nobel laureates in economics. Right? He wanted to do econ, right? and he was blown away. He was bouncing across the green, the you know grassy area outside the college, just excited by the experience. And he came in there, and they just thought they had about 40 minutes with him, three of these, and they just kept peppering him with problems to solve. he He says, I don't know. I have no idea what the answer is. And he was, you know, said, no, we're not here. But they said at the beginning, we're not here to see if you know the answer. We're here to see if you can think like an economist. It was all about asking the right questions. And we mm. do have an education model, as Ken Robinson as Ken Robinson, used to always talk about, that was built on the industrial revolution, and reading, writing, arithmetic. Yeah. So the ability, how fast can you learn, but also the ability to learn and adapt is, you know, one of my past guests, and I'm lucky, I'm, I'm happy, I'm going to catch up with my friend next week, is a lady called Danny Coleman, who's the director of hazard management for Cayman Islands. And mm-hmm. before she fully settled at her home in Cayman, she traveled the world and she still is on a rapid response squad for the world, the International Red Cross. Yep. So they, they put them on rotation on standby and they sit in normally London or somewhere else for a few months and they just drop them into disaster zones. Cayman has coped with COVID better than virtually any country in the world, right? And one of the things she talks about is just fundamentally, this country almost epigenetically knows how to deal with disaster. Yeah it It's systemized almost at a gene pool level yeah. right, Um that you think ahead, you look at it. The Israelis are, are somewhat like this, too, after their experiences in the 60s and 70s. So I think there's something about, you know, if the things we don't have to learn because they're built into us systematically, whether it's a corporation or an individual, then that can leave room for fresh kinds of learning. Some of those, you know, one of there's there might be several you can talk about, but one of those core things is this idea of OODA, which, you know, is my simple way of expressing it to people, is how fighter pilots make decisions, right? But yep. talk a little bit about that, because you've done a bit of work on that of late.
1: Yeah, so, so U- UDA is a concept that I, I never heard of when I was in the military, even though it's a military-derived thinking model. Uh, it was formulated by a, a chap called John Boyd, who is a fighter pilot in, the, in Korea, but he was also a prolific studier of all sorts of different fields like science and philosophy and military doctrine and history. And Uda actually came out. It's not really designed. It wasn't really called that when he was a fighter pilot. This is more of a, you know, people pestering him to name it after he cut a sway through um, through foreign, foreign policy and, and military doctrine. So he called it Uda towards the end of his life, I believe. Mm. It stands to observe, orient and decide and act. It's really about action, I think. So decision decision is the thing that we we focus on a lot as you know in leadership positions and, and and the decisions are important, but it's actually the only place within that loop so it's it's essentially a you know you observe what's going on in the world mm-hmm. you decide what it means for you you uh, so you 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 marry that up with your internal view of the world, you decide what that means and what you want to do about it, and then you go and take an action mm-hmm. If you think about it, the only place that you're in, and you know, they're fractal, so they happen at the individual level when I'm doing martial arts, or they happen at the kind of, you know, societal level when, mm. when we're trying to make decisions about whether we should, you know, do crazy things like, uh, get rid of our most strategic airfield just before we want to evacuate a whole country, that, that type of thing. Um, so the only, the only place at which an, an OODA, an OODA loop at any scale contacts the environment is in observation and action. Mm. So all that stuff in the middle is just noise because You know, taking, taking an action is what causes your outside environment to change and observing it is what causes you to know what's, what you need to care about and what's happened. And you know, when you, when you go beyond the kind of superficial understanding of OODA as this kind of, you know, linear process that you just go through stepwise, it actually just applies to pretty much everything that we've been talking about. And so I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I, I don't mean to, but it just any conversation about this type of thing inevitably gets onto OODA because it just, it just fits. The model fits
0: the reality so well. So, how about take us through? Now, let's talk about the loop element of the OODA Loop and how that re- relates to what you've been talking about around how fast can we learn and mm-hmm. systems and you know systems are not uh, rather than set of skills.
1: Okay, so I'll give I'll give you an example. I've been working with a with a restaurant company. You know, I've been working on putting technology in place to help move data around the company so that the data that you need to make a decision is in the right place, right? So that's one example of speeding up the loop, right? Now, instead of going and asking somebody in the back office to do a load of Excel spreadsheet stuff, the stuff that you need to make your decision is in a dashboard, and you can just see, okay, you know, our X or Y is dropping. Mm -hmm. So that's a sort of superficial level example of speed through an OODA loop increased, and therefore better decisions and actions being able to be taken, But what, what that also does is it changes the orientation within the company now is, is another, it's, it's another example of that kind of higher platform to build upon because now you've got all of that stuff that was friction and noise in the system is now less. So now you've got more visibility of what's actually going on. So for example, you can now look at a dashboard to say, what is my average sales per cover in every restaurant on every day of the week? Mm -hmm. And then you can. You know, you can use that to make better decisions about, okay, how many people do I need in this one? How many people do I need in this one? Hmm. You know, if the cost of sale if the if the average spend is higher on a weekend, should we staff up with more people to give people better service? Or you know, you can you can start making finer and finer decisions and having more and more sort of fine observations about about things. So it's kind of the, the you know, that having a better orientation allows you to observe better. Observing better feeds a better orientation, and it's all this kind of it's either a positive loop, in in which case all of that stuff's getting better, mm-hmm. or it's a negative loop, in which case the environment is moving further and further away from you, and you're getting worse and worse at doing this stuff. And I think in many businesses, it's the worse and worse side of things because they can't reorientate at the speed that mm-hmm. their external environment is changing.
0: I find I think this is staying with that example, not least because I'm really, really experienced in restaurants and data. Going back mm-hmm. decades. It's the thing is that it's all about action. That's, that's fascinating because then you start looking at permission, but who has permission to take action? So then you yeah, get yeah, into boots on the ground in the British army, for example, with mission command. Yeah. But it's interesting if the observe, if you, I'm looking at this in a certain way and I'm going, okay, so sometimes it's iteration, right? So, you know, a psychologist used to be very senior in Citrix, used to say to Agile is just the way to make engineers think that they, you know, they could be creative, right? So that's <laughs> playing, playing with that. But if you take action, you can take small actions, fast and repeat now if you've got a set of restaurants you go what happens if we try this what happens if we try this if it doesn't work you change and it's almost like if the focal points of this are observe and act because that's where your interaction with the external environment is right um what do your customers say what are your customers buying how many are coming in the door based upon pricing and offers etc right yeah we can all understand restaurants and pricing to some level so observe and act become almost autonomous at a certain level right because you then measure the key metrics which then leads the senior people, whether it be the restaurant manager or the leadership of the restaurant chain to focus. And then the decide becomes autonomous. Yeah. Right. So yeah, then they can, yeah. it depends how we define Orient, but it then, then can say, well, okay, when we've gone through, if we put this dashboard in place with these metrics, and there are different levels of individual tables to restaurants, days of the week, to areas, yeah. to menus and very multidimensional. It's a, uh, I don't know if they still exist, but it's becoming all Cognos. You did data cubes. It depends on how you, you twisted the data and looked at it. That's all part of a modern yeah. dashboard. And I'm aging myself because I first had a Cognos dashboard in 93. They've been around for a long time. But then means your leadership can focus on the orientation. Yes. Which then gets, then gets me into sort of the whole conversation about heuristics and, yeah. and the stuff that they used to talk about fighter pilots was very different. <laughs> Why do they yeah. crash into the mountains? <laughs> because they're biases. But that's really interesting because then you can have, yeah, applying just that conceptual framework into data, which then becomes yeah. information and, and knowledge at different levels. And you can say, how, you know, we could just have that check in and somebody can be sitting outside this and going, well, what's our overall vision? All right. And how are we behaving towards our customer? Is our purpose this? That's, that's the nebulous bit. And they can be focusing yes. on taking the nebulous or, or the higher level contacts stuff. The system is set with shared understandings is how you kind of instinctively talked about a doctrine. Yes. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. It's, it was really about action. If you design a system, so it's less a system for, for me, it's less a system for leadership that you're talking about. It's a system for action, right? It's a system and for being, really. That,
1: that's what, I mean, it's all orientation towards, um, I, I believe that towards the end of his life, Boyd was actually thinking about changing his diagram. So the, the diagram is this, you know, observe, orient, decide, act with lines indicating the feed forward and feedback loops within it. But I've, I've heard from one of Boyd's contemporaries that he was thinking of just making it all about orientation, right? Hmm. So the way I, the way I draw, draw UDA, which, you know, I'm, I'm no authority on this. I would defer to anyone that actually knew Boyd any day of the week. But the way I draw it is it's a, it's a circle mm-hmm. with observation coming in and there's successive levels of kind of, you know, to, to your data point aggregation, right? If you're sat in the middle of an organization, let's say you've got 40 restaurants, right? You don't need to know how many people are walking through the door at any one point. No. What you do need to know is that restaurant A tried this thing that was really cool and it seems to have driven an uplift in revenue and you want to be able to know whether you can apply that to other restaurants, right? So so there's that kind of autonomy, right? The autonomy of instead of trying one thing per company that takes six months, have each autonomous restaurant be constantly trying multiple different things and have the language to be able to aggregate all that back up and understand how that needs to change your operating model, if you like, or your orientation. Mm -hmm. And then feed that back down or, you know, e- even in, you know, in very advanced organizations, it's even doesn't even need to go into the middle of the organization. It's just something that spreads by osmosis through the kind of informal networks. That's this intangible orientation system of leadership, system of operations, system of taking action that is the thing that I think will separate the performant companies from the non-performant ones or, you know, whatever, whatever a company becomes, whether it's this kind of. Mm nebulous, loosely aligned network of individuals or whatever the future looks like? You know, will companies in the future look more like Al-Qaeda or the Taliban of little cells that kind of individually have skills hmm. that come together, meet an objective, extract right. the value and then pull apart and go and do something else?
0: Well, I look, pulling this together a little bit, about 20 years ago, I was one of the founder members of a network called Global which is Scottish business people around the world, but also Affinity Scots. And one of them mm-hmm. was a the guy who'd gone to university at, you know, Edinburgh University. does exchange program to the States. And he's from Texas, and he's still there. And he's was a senior guy in the business around purchasing, right? And it was one of the, it was the big Texan supermarket chain, grocery mm-hmm. store chain. So they were selling even then in the billions. And he, he was telling stories about how they were able to compete with Walmart because they cooperated with. You know, Walmart got into supermarkets and stuff like this or grocery stores. Yeah. And you're showing examples then of how, you know, near the Mexican border, what they stopped in the shelves in a low-income area was different from a posh area of San Antonio and this kind of thing. But I could just imagine if they continued, not spoken to, same name, Jody, I've not spoken to for about 20 years, but if they continued that and they put all the data around it, which I imagine they have, then you do have each supermarket becomes an autonomous cell, And it's not actually, yeah. you're then moving away from it being informal networks there's a level of empowerment that which goes back to the lance corporal and armed personnel personnel character, uh, character with two or three people, being not having to wait for a radio command, right? Yeah. Um, and then go, okay, they get a dashboard, they yeah. get to see what works, and by the time the regional manager comes down to El Paso, they go, how come? Well, what? When I was here last time? You oriented, you physically oriented the store differently. You've dropped all these SKUs. You have put all these other ones in. And you know, nearly thirty years ago, I did work for the supermarket chain in the Cayman Islands. And they, their biggest thing was they couldn't analyze their their number of individual package units SKUs. Uh, yeah. They had over thirty thousand on the shelves. So back in those days, we used Excel and basic databases to analyze it. But it, yeah. it's so it it is it's if. It goes, it goes back to pull it together for me it kind of goes back to you are gonna to have, there is this level of automation of systems right and i like your core of this loop which is about the orientation because we're only really going to we're going to get singularity out in the next generation or two so in other words artificial intelligence and big data will do away with many many jobs tremendously short-term thing happening with people going well why should you pay me less if i move somewhere else well here's the thing if you can work completely remotely and you're in a high income country, your job will be gone to another country five years now. So you've got to find a way that you can add value around the nebulous stuff, around the stuff that is ambiguous, that requires people to try different things often very fast and, how to learn so in primary schools and secondary schools we need to be teaching our, our kids how to adapt and learn and orient and is, as you say it's actually really all about orientation and yeah. then they need yeah, to there, there is
1: actually to a school that. that is doing that um called synthesis so synthesis school was started as as it was called uh ad astra i think but it was the internal school at spacex for all the all the people that worked at spacex so they taught Kids in an after school club and they use computer games and they, they basically call themselves, you know, if, if Ender's game was real, this mm. is how we would teach children. So, so they teach kids based on games of cooperation mm. and it's fascinating to watch these kids basically doing all of the stuff that we've been talking about on the fly, you know, building group cognition of the patterns and, and things that work and don't work in the game, mm. but doing it at the speed of, you know, a bunch of kids in a playground. Um, and I think, I think that something like that is going to be incredibly important because, you know, we still have a school system. Like I agree with Sir Ken completely. Like we have a school system that is, you know, teaching people how to follow rules and teaching people, you know, how to remember a bunch of stuff that you can get at the, at the click of a button now. Hmm. And you know, what, what is important is teaching kids to have an Oodaloop, loop, teaching kids to orientate
0: themselves. And for me, the piece that sits on the nebulous side of this is when kids are kids in the playground, they are fearless. Yeah. they, they don't worry about being embarrassed. Well, they, that, that, they learn that over their school years, <laughs> right? But they just decide and they act. Yeah. To Have and, you heard
1: and, of there's a? It's not the marshmallow experiment that you might might think of, which is testing yeah. how how patient kids can be. But it's a I can't remember the, the name. I'll, I'll try and look it up after this. I've got some notes somewhere, but uh, it was a bunch of um, architecture students. And they were given a challenge to build a structure out of marshmallows and, and um, dry spaghetti. Hmm. And, and the competition was between, you know, architecture students and kindergartners and children. And the children won because the, the architecture students spent ages thinking about it, jostling for social hierarchy control, who's going to lead, who's going to yeah. follow, all this stuff. And the kids were just like, after chaos, try this, try this, try this let's let 's try this, and they ended up pulling sort of i don 't know almost like pulling genetic material genetic
0: patterns that work out of this kind of chaos and building a better structure it, I mean, it I is the form of the marshmallow experiment, and it's one that's used often in team development workshops with corporations right. and it 's the exact example what you 've done is like for me is you put an overlay on it of a conception so if, if I was running that. If I was still doing that kind of work, which I don't do anymore, but if I was facilitating that kind of team building thing, I'd love to be doing that physical exercise, then, then slamming them with the fact that a bunch of eight year olds is much better than you, right? And then, yeah. then explaining your OODA loop concepts, right? So. Yeah. yeah so anyway, fun. we're, we're uh, you've got uh, somebody knocking on the door and must yeah, ready. <laughs> it must be time for you to go see the kids. Um, and that's one of the, one of the joys of this environment we operate in. Um, so, uh, we have gone a bit over time, um, really enlightening and so much more powerful than a Twitter conversation. So I'm really glad to have you on. And maybe, uh, I think we both live broadly in the London area, don't we? Or whereabouts are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Kent, just outside yeah, London. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah. So maybe we can actually meet in person and have a, a ramble through the woods or something. Cause I'd have Yeah, that would
1: be awesome. Yeah. We could, uh, definitely. Anyway. There's, there's like loads, loads more to be in here. Like I've, absolutely. Yeah, no, and so and I'm
0: really so glad we got there, to yeah. get some focus to it, um, back and forth. And as always, I'd like to just leave you a last word.
1: Uh Yeah, I don't really have one. I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, dinner's on the table. Um, That's a lot. I, huh? you know, I, I, I do think that this stuff is important. Um, and I'm now, I'm, I'm taking that experience of working with a restaurant company and I'm turning it into a, Slightly more structured offering of if you're a restaurant business that's, that's growing and you need to get all of this stuff in one sock, which is the case because, you know, companies as they grow nowadays, they, they use a SaaS product for this and a SaaS product for that. And you end up with this oh. very fragmented kind of back office picture. So I'm basically turning what I've just talked about into an offering to start. Bringing that stuff together, build a dashboard, make the better decisions, operate quicker. So if anyone is interested in that, then, um, drop me a line or if anyone's interested in chatting about it, drop me a line. Uh, I love nerding out about this stuff. So, um, yeah.
0: Well, that I, I mean, as somebody who's worked a lot in the restaurant industry, not so much in the UK, but a lot in it, um, you've definitely got a market there. And of course by tomorrow you'll have this show up and you can always send it to people and they get an understanding of how you think. So sure, thanks and somebody, oh, enjoy, enjoy your dinner. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Tom. Cheers.